0: Hello and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and food fan, take you through all things food and psychology. This is a psychology bite, a straightforward psychology episode where I talk about an aspect of psychology that I think is interesting or useful or that you guys have asked for. This topic is one that 95% of you said that you've struggled with at some point so hopefully you'll get something out of it. We're going to be talking all about self-sabotage. I'm going to take you through what it is and a few of the reasons that it comes about. I'm describing self-sabotage as the ways in which we get in our own way and that means the ways that you maybe start something that you want to do but don't get around to finishing it or maybe you don't even start at all although rationally there's no practical reason why you couldn't get it done. Sometimes self-sabotage is more dramatic than that Maybe you have a job interview, but you go out and get drunk the night before and you turn up late or hung over, or you manage to find some reason to not show up at all. In short, self-sabotage describes the ways that you and only you get in the way of your own goals, ambitions, and needs. One thing that people often say about self-sabotaging behaviours is that they're a sign of a fear of success. And whilst I get what people mean when they talk about a fear of success, personally, I don't like that phrase at all. It's not because it's illogical. There are lots of things that we do that appear illogical because humans are irrational beings and many of our actions have emotional or unconscious motivations. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's inaccurate. And in psychology, we have to try our best to be as accurate as possible. It's really important why would you be afraid of success? Who doesn't like nice things? In my clinical experience it's not the success per se that the person is trying to avoid, it's the perceived or expected consequences of that success. It's if that success will be tainted in some way with something negative or hostile or frightening that people find sometimes very creative ways to avoid coming out on top. So in this episode I'm going to talk about those negative consequences and their roots so that you can have a better understanding of what might be going on the next time you find yourself getting in your own way. The first cause is pretty straightforward. Often success is accompanied by some kind of change. Nailing that job interview means starting a new job. A successful date means a chance to bring someone new into your life. Graduating from school or university means stepping into the adult world and starting a new phase of life. In this scenario the fear of success is a fear of change. What will this new life look like? Will I be any good at it? What happens if I don't like it? What happens if I'm not one of the best in this new world the way that I am in my current one? All of these anxieties are about how comfortable or uncomfortable we are with the new and the unknown. It means accepting that there may be things in this new part of our lives that we don't have much control over. And for some people, that prospect can be very frightening. This comes down to our innate sense of safety. If our concept of the world is that it is fairly safe, or that we can handle most things, if we feel that we are adaptable enough to cope or that we have the support around us if things do get tough, then change feels much less ominous and we can allow ourselves to think about the positive aspects of it. However, if we don't feel we have the social support or the necessary emotional flexibility, or we tend to be pessimistic, the prospect of change can be very worrying and we can find that we create ways to try to keep things just as they are. That leads me to the topic of anxiety. Let's imagine that there's a new person at work and you like them and you think that they like you and maybe you flirt a little bit and actually you think maybe the two of you might be a good match. And then one night after work drinks, they suggest a date and you say yes. Fantastic. But here I Self-sabotage can take a few different turns. Maybe the next time you see them at work you end up being a bit cold or short with them and you're not sure why. You find yourself just avoiding them a bit, not seeing them at lunch and not talking to them as much, taking longer to respond to their messages. Or maybe it's not that. Perhaps for the first few days leading up to the date you're fine but the closer you get to that evening the more things start to go a little bit weird. Maybe you can't decide what to wear. Everything just looks wrong and you waste so much time changing in and out of the same two outfits. Or you don't check the address of the bar that you're supposed to be meeting at. Or you don't double check the time that you were supposed to be meeting. You maybe say, oh, I'll remember or you'll think you'll do it later. Or you haven't checked how much time you'll need to get there. Whatever way it goes down, somehow you contrive to not put your best foot forward with this date. You turn up late, or you leave them waiting, or you've created an atmosphere that makes it more uncomfortable than it should have been. Maybe you don't make it at all, and they end up thinking that you're not that interested. All the while, the thing that you've been wrestling is your anxiety, anxiety. You are so nervous about making a good impression that you make a bad impression. Sometimes in psychology we call this the ironic effect, like the more you try not to spill your pasta down your fresh white shirt, the more likely it is to happen. For some people, a fear of disappointment plays a big part in their self-sabotaging behaviours. So if we stick with a date example, Maybe you know the person well enough as a friend or as an acquaintance to know that they already like you. Maybe a friend of theirs has told you that they're into you. So you've already made your first impression and you know it's a good one. But the problem is the next part. The problem isn't your first impression, it's what happens if it goes well? What happens if you get your hopes up and then something goes wrong? they change their minds or they meet somebody else or whatever it might be. This is often something that you see in slightly longer term relationships too, where people call it a fear of commitment. The other person doesn't want to label it as a relationship or even though you get on great in private, they never invite you to meet their friends or their family. Or in some cases, worst of all, completely out of the blue, When nothing is wrong on either side, they decide to end the relationship. And often, even they don't know what the problem is. But I have the same issue with the term fear of commitment as I do the term fear of success. It's not quite accurate enough. It's not the commitment that people are afraid of. The commitment feels great. Having someone to love you is one of the core features of human emotional life. So it's not the commitment that you or the other person is afraid of, it's the risk of loss. Something about the intensity of the feeling of love or togetherness brings that person in close and uncomfortable contact with the feeling of having that love taken away, the fear of losing it and being left with the sadness, confusion and grief of being alone. Often this feeling is linked to a serious loss earlier in life. An obvious example is an unexpected or unexplained parental divorce or infidelity that drastically changes family life. But it needn't be that straightforward. Sometimes that feeling of loss can be evoked by having to move house or leave a school where you felt safe and comfortable. A sudden death of someone you love even in adulthood can leave you with the feeling that pouring your heart into any kind of relationship with someone else is just not a very good emotional survival strategy and that the best thing to do is to keep your emotional connections to a bare minimum. So here the fear of disappointment or the fear of commitment is actually a fear of loss. So many of these examples come down at their core to self-esteem. On the date, you feel like you have to make the absolutely most perfect first impression because you're not sure that the person will like you otherwise. In the fear of commitment example, you're not sure that you're interesting or lovable enough to keep someone's attention long term. There's one cause of self-sabotage that I think will be surprising to many people and it's passive aggression. First, let's understand what passive aggression is. I'll be doing a podcast soon on anger and aggression where I'll go into it in more detail but broadly passive aggression is a set of behaviours that display one's hostility in an indirect way. So stonewalling or giving someone the silent treatment instead of just telling them that you're annoyed with them is an example of passive aggression. Sometimes passive aggression is used as a means of control especially in abusive relationships but it can also be used to express anger or hostility by someone who feels like they are relatively less powerful compared to somebody else. Children will often be passive aggressive with their parents if it's been made clear that expressing their anger is unacceptable. Sometimes this can be fairly harmless. A child who doesn't want to do their chores may just do them really slowly, or not very well, as a way of expressing their protest, but still, on the surface, doing what they're told. But sometimes, passive aggression can be much more self-destructive. Let's say you have a parent and a child. The parent, for whatever reason, is highly competitive. They are competitive in their own lives with their colleagues, they negotiate hard and they take no prisoners. The kind of person that plays a lot of squash. And they also bring that attitude into their parenting, needing their child to be the best that they can boast and gloat to their friends about their child's achievements. Now, of course, parents do this a lot, but in this example, in reality, talking about the child is nothing to do with the child's success, but about the parent's self-esteem needs. So this parent is coaching their child for a spelling contest. It's not going to make a difference to what school the child gets into or anything like that. It's just another accolade that the parent wants the child to attain. And so they push them and they coach them and they drill them on spellings and the need to win. But... The parent hasn't made any attempt to check whether this is actually something that the child wants. Maybe the child does like spelling or is naturally good at it, but isn't actually interested in winning contests. Maybe they want to focus on music or dance instead. Or maybe it's not an interest of the child at all, and the parent just wants to prove what a talented and gifted coach or tutor they can be. And again, in this case, the child is just a prop for the parent to show off their own skills. However it comes about, the real needs of the child get lost in the parent's drive for success. But the child doesn't feel like they have the power or the opportunity to say no or to push back. They may be very angry at how they're being used by the parent, but not be in a position to express that directly. And so passive aggression becomes a way of indirectly expressing their hostile feelings towards the parent. Let me set the scene. It's the finals of the spelling contest. Our child is neck and neck with their competitor. They have just one more word to spell correctly to win the competition. Standing on the podium, they look out and they see their parent gazing back at them intently. The adjudicator calls out the word. The child hears it. They know it. Looking out into the crowd, they see the corner of their parents' mouth rise in a slightly smug smile because they're already anticipating the win. The child begins to spell the word. And then, right in the middle, looking straight into their parents' face, deliberately says the wrong letter. The child watches as their parents face drops into confusion and disappointment. Now the child gets a little bit of satisfaction from knowing that even in this tiny way they've been able to pull back a little bit of the power but this kind of high is short lived because they then have to deal with the parents negative feelings and at the same time they have denied themselves what could have been a good experience and sometimes this kind of dynamic is also visible in eating disorders where a child who's angry with a parent but unable to express it directly expresses their rage or their hatred on themselves now they're successful in provoking despair in the parent but of course they hurt themselves in the process In the book, Fat is a Feminist Issue, the psychotherapist Susie Orbach describes how, for some of the women that she worked with, their compulsive overeating was a form of protest against the unrealistic social demands to be slim and attractive at all times and of being valued only for their bodies. So in this way, their eating was a type of passive aggression. But invariably, in passive aggression, everyone loses. Okay, now we'll look at a more difficult pair of causes, self-hatred and the self-fulfilling prophecy, and they need just a tiny bit of explanation. If you think about it, it's an extraordinary facet of psychology that we have the capacity to hate ourselves. It's as if we split our whole selves into different pieces and one of those pieces has the ability to hate the other parts. But as extraordinary as it sounds, this is a phenomenon that we are all familiar with when we've had experiences of being angry with ourselves or where we've observed ourselves behaving in ways that we can't rationally explain. The nature of this fragmentation, how it happened, how long ago why and how we can bring them back into alignment is much of what we do in therapy. It's a process of reintegration of all the parts that have somehow broken off into separate aspects that are now fighting each other. Often at the roots of subjective self-hatred are objective experiences of being hated or rejected whether that's been at the hands of bullies or abusive partners cruel parents, racial prejudice, homophobia, xenophobia or some other form of discrimination. These repeated experiences of hostility against who we are can get taken in and inside our own minds we become our own abuser. So even if the outside circumstances change, the abuser lives on inside our own minds, and we can continue the cycle of emotional violence against ourselves. So when I say self-hatred, really I'm talking about this internalised external hatred or hostility. And this sets us up for the self-fulfilling prophecy. As the name suggests, the self-fulfilling prophecy is the way that in predicting an outcome, we then indirectly find ways of making it come true. Here's a quick example. Cast your mind back to sports day when you were a kid. You've been entered into a race, but because you're pretty sure that you won't win, you don't really bother doing that much training or preparation for it. I mean, what's the point? And maybe during the race you don't run quite as fast as you actually could because frankly it would be even more embarrassing and disappointing to come last when you had actually tried. And at the end of the race, lo and behold, you don't win. Just as you expected. And look, maybe if you had really tried you still wouldn't have won but A, you never really know and B, there are other benefits to putting all of your effort into something that you miss out on. This combination of self-hatred and the self-fulfilling prophecy can crop up in many, many ways. If there is a hostile part of you stomping around inside your head saying that you're not good enough, then it can keep you away from taking opportunities that would prove it wrong. So you don't go for the promotion, you don't enter the competition, you don't go on the date. The self-fulfilling prophecy can hold us back from the opportunity to have good experiences because we've internalised the belief that it won't happen or that we don't deserve nice things. And this can become a cycle that can be very difficult to shift without some outside support. But self-sabotaging behaviours are not always pathological. That is to say that they aren't always based on some internal or irrational fear. Sometimes what looks like self-sabotage is actually self-preservation. And this is often the case if you are in competition with someone who, to put it simply, is a bad loser. And again, this can vary from mild to serious and life-threatening. We'll start with a mild example. Sometimes parents will encourage an older sibling to allow a younger sibling to win at a board game or a game of tennis or whatever it might be because the younger sibling hasn't learned how to lose yet. At their stage of development losing still feels like a very serious assault to the self and the feelings of loss or humiliation still feel very very overwhelming and can result in tables being turned over or hours of intractable sulking. So the older or more emotionally mature sibling, because actually emotional maturity isn't always associated with age, will throw the game just to keep the peace. They know that they have or could have won, but you know, it's fine. Further up the spectrum, and sticking with a sibling example, maybe the siblings are a little bit older, but one still hasn't worked through how to manage envy and competition. Let's call them Ali and Ben. Ali is the more emotionally mature one and perhaps Ben feels like Ali is the parent's favourite and it makes them feel hostile towards Ali. This kind of situation makes the prospect of success more dangerous for Ali because a win might contribute to Ben feeling less in comparison, feeding into feelings of inadequacy. If Ben is unable to manage and process these feelings, they may take them out on Ali, perhaps physically in a fight, or maybe emotionally by being critical or mean, telling lies to stir up trouble with the parents, interfering with friendships, or just picking on Ali for doing well. In this situation, Ali might just decide that winning isn't worth the hassle and manages to get through just doing well enough but never really sticking their head above the parapet. If Ali is lucky, they only use the strategy at home, but more than likely this becomes a template for how they interact with the outside world and how they expect other people to respond to their successes. At the severe end of this kind of scenario, you have what sometimes happens in abusive relationships where very often the abuser's hostility is driven by deep-seated and intense feelings of inadequacy and insecurity. Controlling their partner is a means of trying to ensure that they never abandon them, but it also means that their partner's success or even happiness in any realm feels like a threat to the abuser's sense of self-integrity. And so limiting, restricting, or hiding their own success is an important self-preservation maneuver for the partner. In these examples, self-sabotage is really self-preservation in the context of environments of poorly processed envy and low self-esteem. And I say poorly processed envy because envy is not in itself a problematic emotion but the issue is that people often don't know what to do with it. I'll be doing a separate episode looking at Envy and Jealousy in a couple of months when I'll go into this in more detail. Okay, last one. Regular listeners will know that I am always talking about the relationship between the body and the brain, and so I have to mention one way that this relationship shows up in self-sabotaging behaviours. And it has to do with the overlap between... The physiological signs of different emotional states. For example, one of the important factors in panic disorder is that the person is acutely aware of the bodily sensations of anxiety. So you know, things like rapid breathing, heart palpitations, sweating and so on. And they interpret these sensations as signs of danger. However, these are also the signs of excitement. And one psychological intervention is to help people to reconstruct that nervousness about performance, for example, as excitement. In fact, a previous guest on the podcast, Hal Robson-Khanu, spoke about doing this to help him manage his performance as a Premier League footballer. Even more broadly, these same sensations are associated with any physiological stimulation, whether that's fear, excitement surprise sexual arousal or anything else and what can happen is that for some people they have a strong association between some physical symptom that they link to fear danger or trauma but in this scenario it means that the feelings of excitement or anticipation that might be associated with success evoke in these people more negative or painful associations in this situation, self sabotage is again a self preservation strategy as they try to keep themselves in a neutral emotional valence. Okay, chaps, so let's recap. I have taken you through why I don't think the term fear of success is very satisfying, and that's mostly because it stops short at the actual roots of these self destructive behaviours. And I've taken you through some of the many reasons for self sabotage, including anxiety and low self-esteem, fear of disappointment and loss, passive aggression, self-hatred, self-sabotage as a defense against envy and how the physiology of success and excitement can be a reminder of trauma for some people. Hopefully that adds some light perhaps to some behaviors that you have noticed in yourself but couldn't understand before please if you have found this episode useful do share it and think about leaving a review as this helps it to reach more people and remember to hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss any of the future episodes. I will be back soon to talk about anger and in an upcoming episode I'll be talking to two special guests about sex worker rights so do stay tuned for that. That just leaves me to thank you very very much for listening and until next time I wish you the very best of health.